Okay, chapter 23, I'm sorry, 32 is spinal injuries and spine motion restriction. Hang on one second. So an introduction, vehicle collisions, falls, recreational activities pose a risk for spine injuries. Spine includes injuries to the spinal column or and to the nervous system. Can either be a fracture to the spinal column, the vertebrae, or it can be actually damaged to the spinal cord. Patients with spinal injuries must be handled in such a way to avoid movement of the spine. So we're basically, where the thought process is, we're going to try to kind of splint the spinal injury as well. We want to avoid gross manipulation, gross movement of that spinal column to prevent further damage from occurring. So the nervous system has two major functions, communication and control. It sends uh, sensory impulses from the skin, from other areas back up to the brain, and then the brain sends impulses for control. It enables awareness of and reaction to the environment and coordinates body responses to changes in the environment as well. There's two structural divisions of the nervous system. We have the CNS or the central nervous system. The only two components of the CNS are the brain and the spinal cord. And we have the peripheral nervous system which are any and all other nerves outside of the CNS. And that includes things like your facial nerves, cranial nerves. So again, here is the CNS is just the brain and the spinal cord. The peripheral nervous system, again, is anything else. Cranial nerves, the spinal nerves that branch off and those nerves that branch further off and so forth. Functional divisions of the nervous system. We remember we have the voluntary functions influenced by the activity of skeletal muscles that requires conscious thought, talking, um, walking, blinking, things along those lines, and autonomic. Influence the activities of the involuntary muscle spasms, muscles, I'm sorry, and glands. And remember the autonomic nervous system is then broken down into two subdivisions. We have the sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight response, and the parasympathetic nervous system, or the rest and digest. Spinal column. Remember, there are 33 different vertebrae in the spinal column. They are broken down into five divisions. We have seven cervical vertebrae in the neck, 12 Thoracic vertebrae, those thoracic vertebrae are the ones that are connected to the ribs, make up the thoracic cavity. Five lumbar vertebrae that comprise of the lower back. Five sacral vertebrae. And then we have those four toxic vertebrae that are fused and makes up your tailbone. Those vertebrae are bound together by ligaments. Remember, ligaments connect bone to bone. And in between each of the vertebrae, if they're not fused, 
we have discs that are designed to help with movement for cushioning as well to prevent the uh, spinal uh, vertebrae from grinding against each other. So again, cervical, thoracic, lumbar, sacral, coccyx, and then we have seven cervical, 12 thoracic, five lumbar, five sacral, four coccyx. We have, there's different tracks inside the spinal cord or how those nerves run through the spinal cord. So we have motor tracks. They carry impulses to the same side of the body. So if the patient is moving their left arm or the left side of their body, those motor tracks for the left side of the body are moving on the left side of the spinal cord. We have pain tracks. Those pain tracks are carried on the opposite side of the body. So if I do something and injure my left arm, that pain track where that, those nerves run back up to the brain and back down to my arm, those run on the opposite side. So if my left arm's injured, those pain tracks run on the right side of the spinal cord. And like touch tracks, they run on the same side of the body, just like the motor tracks. And why this is important is going to help explain why we get some of the signs and symptoms we get for different types of spinal cord injuries. So the different or common mechanisms of injury that we see causing spinal injuries. We can have things like vehicle collisions can be the most common cause. 85% of patients with spinal fracture or dislocation do not present a neurological deficit. That is one thing that we assess for, but that's saying the vast majority of the time if a vertebrae is broken, the spinal cord's either not injured or it's not damaged enough to where they're actually starting to have neurological deficit like paralysis, weakness, so forth. And improper handling of a spinal cord injury may result in neurologic injury. That's why we are very cautious on how we load and transport these patients. And the spine is susceptible to injury from several different types of mechanisms. We can have compression. It's weight of the body driven against the head. Very common in diving emergencies. Patient drives into, dives into shallow water, hits the bottom of the pool with their head, that compresses the spine and breaks a vertebrae or causes damage to the spinal cord. We have flexion, severe forward movement of the head where the chin meets the chest or when the torso is excessively curled forward. Extension, severe backward movement of the head in which the neck is stretched or arched backwards. Type, uh, very common whiplash type of injury that is extension. We can have rotational injuries, lateral movement of the head or spine beyond its normal rotation, twisting too much. Lateral bending, body or neck is bent severely from side to side. And we have distraction, which the vertebrae and spinal cord are stretched or pulled apart, where we typically see distraction injuries are in hangings. Penetration, penetrating injury to the spine. 
So just an illustration that shows those different types of injuries. Again, diving emergency often results in compression injuries. And you can see where that fracture is. Flexion injury, hyperextension like whiplash, flexional or rotational injuries, and then distracting injury is from like hanging, and of course we have penetrations. So patients can suffer a spinal column injury or a spinal cord injury, or they can have both. So a spinal column injury, when we talk about the spinal column, we're talking about the bones, the vertebrae themselves. This includes things like fractures or dislocated vertebrae. This, if it's just the spinal column that is injured, we're going to have pain or tenderness to where that injury location is at. Spinal cord injury, on the other hand, is going to often result in neurological deficits, damage to the nervous tissue itself. Again, this is going to cause neurological deficits, disruption in movement, paralysis, extreme weakness, or sensation. They may not be able to feel uh, whatever area is injured at beyond that side, or they may have tingling sensations. So if the patient has a complete spinal cord injury, this is a transection of the cord. The entire cord is damaged, meaning wherever that injury is located, no nervous impulses are able to get past that injury location. So everything below that is not going to work. Prevents motor impulses from passing down from the brain to the body. So we're going to have things like paralysis, total loss of motor sensory and autonomic function below the site of injury. Talking about spinal shock is a temporary concussion-like insult to the spine, spinal cord that, that causes effects including loss of sympathetic tone below the level of injury. So spinal, when we talk about spinal shock, again, that is a temporary injury. So, and again, it's oftentimes caused because of the swelling. Spinal cord get it, gets injured, it swells, compresses it, and now we have paralysis below the waist or so forth. But in spinal shock, as that swelling begins to go down, they can regain that function as the spinal cord begins to heal. Spinal shock also can result in the initial presentation with complete loss of function. And very similar to that of a TIA, we're not going to know if this is spinal shock or a true spinal or spinal cord transection. So we're going to treat it like worst case scenario that it's not temporary and this is uh, life-threatening, could potentially be life-threatening. During this time, patient can lose control of the bladder, bowels, and the males can develop a propism as well. Again, as that swelling starts going down and resolves itself, uh, the, again, the patient goes back to normal within 24 hours. We have neurogenic hypotension. The reason we get this is because we're getting that vasodilation of the arteries, and we're getting the diminished release of epinephrine and norepinephrine. Again, this neurogenic shock that we've talked about. Skin is warm and dry. 
pulse rate is normal to slowing because we're not getting the epinephrine release. Patients can also suffer from an incomplete spinal injury. Occurs when the spinal cord is injured, but is not completely severed or transected. And the, if for a incomplete spinal injury, the injury does not involve all three tracks. So we might just affect two of the three or just one of the three. May have motor, light touch, or pain. Again, some but not all signs of spinal injury are present. The pattern of loss of function is reflected in the different spinal cord syndromes. So central cord system, the medial portion of the motor and pain tracts are injured. Those are the ones that control the upper extremities. Lateral portion of the tracts control the lower extremities. So in central cord syndrome, the medial portion of the spinal cord is injured. So we look back up here, we know the medial portion affects the upper extremities. So with a central cord injury, only the upper extremities are going to be symptomatic. Patient may have weakness, paralysis, or pain to the upper extremities, while the lower extremities remain in good function. And also have anterior cord syndrome. It's a loss of function in motor pain tracts, which is the anterior portion of the cord, but not in light touch tracts. So if a patient has an anterior cord injury, patient experiences paralysis, inability to feel pain below the level of injury, but can still feel just light touching. Then we can have what's known as Brown-Sicard syndrome. Injury affects only one side of the spinal cord. So with Brown-Sicard syndrome, we get very unique presentation. Loss of motor and light touch sensation on the affected side. And on the opposite side, we have loss of pain sensation on the opposite side of where that injury is located. An example, patient cannot move or feel light touch on the right, but can feel pain on the right side of their body. On the left, patient has movement, can feel light touch, but cannot feel painful stimulus. And here's just an illustration of showing which part of the cord is injured for those different syndromes. So our assessment-based approach for spinal injuries. Start with our scene size up, scene safety, checking the need for additional resources. Again, oftentimes these are gonna be with NVCs, so make sure that we are parking appropriately, using a truck as a block. Make sure that we're determining that mechanism of injury, we're evaluating that mechanism of injury. And remember the mechanism of injury heightens your suspicion that a potential injury might have occurred, but it doesn't prove it. How we prove it is by doing a full assessment. And deduce the mechanism of injury from evidence at the scene, 
and determine if that mechanism could have possibly injured the spine. So again, common mechanisms of injury that we may come across for spinal injuries. Crashes, again, is the most common. Falls, blunt penetrating trauma, sports, recreational activities, gunshot wounds, hangings, even possibly electrical injuries can cause damage as well. Gunshot wounds to the head or torso, unresponsive trauma patients. Again, for unresponsive patients, we can't rule out a spinal injury, so we often just assume there is one, start maintaining spinal precautions on that patient. So in this example, we have the front end collision. We notice that there is spidering or uh, broken of the driver's side window, may indicate the patient's head struck the window. Uh, again, significant injury, we're gonna at least initially assume there is a possible spinal injury. Now we may be able to clear the spine, assure that there is not a spinal injury and let go, but at least initially we need to maintain that manual state, uh, spinal stabilization. Primary assessment, it's gonna remain the same. Our priorities are still going to be ABCs. However, if we do suspect a spinal injury or it's just a major trauma, at least initially, we immediately need to hold manual spinal stabilization. So as soon as we approach the patient, my partner's gonna hold C-spine, I'm gonna start going through my ABCs. If unknown or unsure whether a spinal injury is possible or present, again, err on the side of caution, provide that spinal mobilis uh, precautions if protocols require. Again, after a further assessment, if we determine, yeah, there's, there's no injury, we can always let go of that head later on. Once manual stabilization is performed, it must be maintained until the patient is fully immobilized on a backboard or other device if performed. Again, now this is starting to change. Us as uh, EMS, we may be able to clear the spine. So we may hold C-spine initially, do an assessment, determine, yeah, they're probably not injured. We can let go of the spine. And again, we've mentioned this earlier that backboards are going away. Fully immobilizing somebody on a backboard is not the normal anymore. So for this PowerPoint, this presentation where it says fully immobilized on a backboard, we're going to substitute that. We're going to follow our spinal precautions protocol. We're going to complete that protocol if we still suspect spinal injury. For UMCMS, for the SPIMS region, that protocol is putting them on a seat collar putting them on the stretcher with the head slightly elevated and strapped down. So again, we don't really use backboards during transport anymore. Again, if we're doing spinal injury, if it's a high enough spinal injury, it could have paralyzed the diaphragm and chest muscles to the point where the patient is no longer able to breathe. So if we notice, we look at that mechanism of injury, we determine, hey, there is a possibility of a spinal injury here. Again, as soon as we approach, we immediately need to provide inline manual stabilization of the spine. If we have to manually open the airway, we do not use the head tilt chin lift maneuver because that's going to manipulate the spine. We then have to go to that jaw thrust maneuver. And again, then we follow our local protocols for spine motion restrictions.
again, so that determination of when do we initially hold C-spine versus not, oftentimes this is just going to be solely based on that mechanism of injury. We look at that car crash or whatever the case may be. Is there a possibility of a spinal injury? If so, hold manual stabilization, do your assessment. If we can clear the spine, then we can let go. If not, we put them on the backboard or follow the spinal precautions stabilization protocol. Maintain man manual stabilization until a thorough assessment does, does not reveal indicators for motion, spine motion restrictions or spine motion restriction has been accomplished. So based on the primary mechanism of injury, this incident, this car crash is capable of producing a spinal injury. If the patient presents with the following, we're going to follow that spine motion restriction protocol. If they have altered mental status, we can't clear the spine on somebody that has an altered mental status. If they have a painful distracting injury, they may have a spinal injury, but they also have a femur fracture as well. Their body's kind of focusing in on that femur fracture. They can't really do, we can't really palpate the spine and ask them if it's tender anywhere because again, that their body is focusing on that femur fracture cannot effectively communicate with, again, if they're altered, if they don't speak the same language as you, and we can't adequately communicate with them, then we can't clear the spine. High priority patients are unresponsive, responsive, but unable to follow commands. And again, these are the generic ones that we've talked about previously. If they have an abnormal respiratory pattern, any problem with the ABCs. If they have obvious signs of a spinal injury, neurological deficits, et cetera, those are also going to be high-priority patients. Secondary assessment, maintain inline spinal stabilization while we're performing our secondary assessment. Conduct a physical exam, possibly if, if indicated to do so, that would be a complete head-to-toe exam. After we assess the neck, palpate the neck, feel the back of the neck, then we can apply a C-collar. Or if we're doing the rapid secondary exam, we can wait to apply that C-collar until we finish the anterior portion of the patient. But before we log roll them onto their side to check their back, we need to put that C-collar on. Assess PMS in all four extremities. If we're dealing with a suspected or possible spinal injury, we check PMS in all four extremities. We, we're not going to do this on every single patient, only if time allows, they're not critical, et cetera. But we may assess flexion, extension, abduction of the fingers, Adduction of the fingers, can they move them in and out? Wrist and hand, do they have good movement? Can they push up on my hand? Can they push down on my hand? Same thing with the feet, plantar flexion, dorsiflexion. We can assess pain response, inflict some type of painful response. If we don't have a uh, cotton swab, we can use our pin, pinch the back of the fingernail, et cetera. Light touch response, lightly touch them, see if they can feel us touching them. Posterior exam. Again, after we do the anterior side of the body, we need to check the back. So with that seat collar in place, we're going to log roll the patient onto their side. 
we're going to continue to maintain C-spine throughout that log row. Assess the posterior body. Run your hands down the patient's back. Palpate the area of the spine gently. Look for any other injuries on the posterior surface while we're back there as well. Vital signs, if the brain or spinal cord is damaged, vital signs might reflect neurogenic hypotension, neurogenic shock. Falling blood pressure, normal to slowing pulse, warm, dry skin below the injured site. If hypotensive is severe and the patient has tachycardia, that may indicate bleeding and not spinal shock. Again, we don't get an elevated heart rate for neurogenic shock. So if we do see elevated heart rate, that's more indicative of a bleed somewhere. The patient's responsive, we obtain a history. We go through our full sample history on the patient. We want to know what happened, the events leading to onset, the E in sample. Things to be on the lookout for that may indicate that the patient has a spinal injury. If when we're doing that posterior assessment, we're running our hands up and down their back, they have tenderness right along the spine. Pain associated with movement. Don't ask the patient to move unless authorized by protocols. But if they said, yeah, my neck hurts every time I move it, well, we need to say, well, don't move your neck. But that is a possible indication that, yeah, there's something, there could be something wrong. Pain independent of palpation or movement. They say their neck hurts, even though we're holding it still and they're not moving or touching. If we feel deformity of the spine on palpation, the vast majority of the time, you will not feel deformity to the spine. Again, deformity is not needed to have a spinal injury or a spinal column injury, but we may in some situations feel a deformity. Soft tissue injuries around the spine may indicate that it was a large area that was injured. Numbness, tingling, weakness, loss of sensation or motor function to the extremities. Loss of bladder and bowel control may indicate a spinal injury. Priapisms in males. Impaired breathing if it's, a, if it's high enough and affecting the diaphragm and those chest muscles. Assessment findings that are indicators for spine motion restrictions. Patient has a GCS less than 15, they may, based on that, we may not be able to clear the spine. If they have a suspected head injury, traumatic brain injury, we probably are not going to be able to clear the spine. Altered mental status, pain or tenderness to the spinal column. I'll show you what our protocols look like uh, to clear the spine coming up. Paralysis, weakness, numbing, uh, numbness, tingling sensation. If we note deformity to the vertebral column, if the patient is under the influence of drugs or alcohol, we don't trust them. It's not what we consider a reliable patient. So we are not able to clear the spine for a unreliable patient. Again, if they cannot communicate effectively with us, language barrier, whatever the case may be, or if they have that painful, distracting injury. So some complications of spinal injuries that we may that may rise. Inadequate breathing effort, 
paralysis of the respiratory muscles can lead to respiratory failure. Respirations may be shallow with little movement of the chest or abdomen because the muscles are paralyzed. And again, if it is affecting their respirations, we determine the patient's not breathing effectively or adequately on their own. We ventilate the patient with the BVM, hooked up to O2. Paralysis, paraplegia is paralysis to the lower half. A patient's paraplegic if both of their legs are paralyzed. A quadriplegic is where the entire body is paralyzed, all four extremities. Hemoplegia is paralysis or weakness on one side of the body versus the other side. If we notice hemoplegia, that is more indicative of a problem inside the brain, inside the skull, not necessarily or not indicative of a spinal cord injury. May have inadequate circulation due to the vasodilation that can occur, can lead to shock. Vasodilation leads to hypotension, poor tissue perfusions. And the skin may be warm and dry. The heart rate is normal or even slightly decreased as well. So our care for somebody that we think has a spinal injury. Again, first important step is as soon as we approach the patient, make sure the scene is safe, we're going to maintain inline spinal stabilization. If not needed, if we can assess the patient, we determine there's not a possibility of a spinal injury, then we can let go later on. But if it is needed and we didn't immediately hold C-spine and the patient moves, patient may suffer from our own inaction. We can cause further damage, permanent disability. So keep the head in a neutral position, the nose in line with the patient's navel. That's how we hold C-spine. Uh, so if the head, if we approach and the patient's head's turned, once we hold C-spine, we're gonna move it back into a natural uh, neutral position. Check the airway and breathing. Remember the jaw thrust is what we will use to open the airway. If the patient's not breathing adequately on their own, we're gonna begin positive pressure ventilations. If they are breathing adequately on their own, then we apply supplemental O2 to maintain O2 sets at or above 95. If they're in shock, again, we don't care about O2 sets, they get placed on high flow O2 for a traumatic injury. Again, patent airway, suction the secretions to clear the airway, but we don't want to turn the patient's head. We don't want to rotate their head if it's massive secretions. If that's the case, we need to log roll the entire patient onto their side, not just moving their head. Assess pulse, motor function, sensation, all four extremities. Make sure that we take the time and we assess that neck before we put on the C-call, especially the backside of the neck. Most C-callers are not gonna have a opening in the back of the C-caller. So if we don't check the neck first and we put the C-caller on, we're gonna have to go without checking that portion of the neck. 
Once the neck has been checked, now we need to apply a C collar. Provide spine motion restrictions of the patient to a long backboard. Again, we don't use long backboards in this region anymore. Most EMS don't as well, but follow your protocol. After placement on the backboard, reassess PMS. Consider ALS backup early, especially if the patient is showing signs and symptoms of shock or is hypotensive. Other than that, we're going to transport the patient to the hospital. Reassessment. Reassess primary assessments first. First step of the reassessment process is to repeat the primary assessment. Repeat vital signs, complaints, interventions, so forth. All right, so guidelines for spine motion restrictions. So there's a historical perspective between talking about the differences, how it kind of came about between spinal mobilization, putting somebody on a full backboard with a C-collar and cervical immobilization devices or CIDs, headbeds or head blocks versus spine motion restrictions. And spine motion restrictions, that is what services are doing these days. So spinal immobilization, until two, 2013, full spinal immobilization with a long spine board was the standard of care for any patient found to have a mechanism of injury which may have resulted from a spinal injury. So it didn't matter exactly what happened to the patient or what the patient's complaint was. If we ran on a patient from a car wreck, and again, doesn't matter if it was minor or major, we threw all of those patients on the backboard as a precaution. Spine motion restriction, American College of Emergency Physicians stated its belief that the efficacy of current practices in out-of-hospital care of patients who may have spinal injuries are not supported with evidence. So again, we would put somebody on a backboard just solely based on the mechanism of injury without, uh, regardless of complaint. Well, studies were showing that there was actually no scientific evidence that a backboard was accomplishing what we wanted it to by stabilizing the spine. And in fact, the research was showing we were causing more harm to the patient by putting them on a backboard than we were helping them. So when this position came out in around 2013, they recommended that we stop using long spine boards. So slowly, everything in EMS is slow, we phase backboards out of our transports. So indications for spine motion restrictions. Again, ultimately, this is up to protocols. But with spine motion restrictions, we may have the option, the protocols to clear the spine, where we don't have to worry about a spinal injury, don't even have to put the patient on a C-collar now. Again, it must be a reliable patient. If they're intoxicated, they're drunk, we can't communicate with them, they're altered, they're not a reliable patient, so we are going to take spinal precautions. 
Unreliable patients with a qualifying mechanism of injury must be provided spine motion restrictions. And again, that may look different from service to service. UMC EMS, where you do your clinicals at. Spine motion restrictions is seat collar, laying on the backboard with the head slightly, I'm, I'm not, sorry, laying on the cot with the head slightly elevated and strapped down. That's all we have to do for them. So this is what the SPIMS protocol looks like. And this is what the UMC EMS protocol looks like. They're identical, just, just formatted a little bit differently. So we use the acronym NSAIDs to help us determine if we can clear the spine or not. First thing that we're going to do is a neurological assessment. Is there any focal deficits, any language barrier? If the, if the answer is yes, they have numbness to their legs. They have paralysis to their legs. We immediately assume they have a spinal injury. We take spinal precautions. If there is, we're able to communicate with them. There's, there's nothing abnormal in the neurological assessment. Then we look at the mechanism of injury, significant mechanism of injury. Now, the significant mechanism of injury is not an absolute. That's just a consider if it was a significant MOI. Next, we look at the patient's alertness. Is there any alterations in mental status? Are they conscious, well-oriented, able to communicate with us? If no, then we have to put spinal precautions on them. If, if they are alert, able to communicate with us, now we move on to intoxication. Are they under the, the influence of drugs or alcohol? If yes, we have to immobilize or, or stabilize their spines. If not, then we move to look at distracting injuries. Do they have a distracting injury somewhere else? If they do, we provide spinal precautions. If not, we move on to the last part, which is the spinal exam. And our spinal exam is we ask them, are you hurting in your neck or back? If they say no, we move on to the next part of the spinal exam. We're gonna palpate, any pain or tenderness, no. Then we move on to, I want you to look up to the sky, look down, touch your chin to your chest, and then move your head from side to side, any pain or tenderness during that. If the answer is no, we just cleared the spine and we don't have to worry about spinal precautions on them any further. So those patients following NSAIDs, we have to provide spine motion restrictions to any type of unreliable patient. We can't trust their answers or we can't communicate with them. Any patient with a neurological deficit, pain or tenderness near a vertebral column. If they have a distracting injury, spinal injury or spine motion restrictions is not necessary for reliable patients that can adequately communicate with us, that has no spinal pain or tenderness, no abnormal neurological findings, no distracting injuries or, or are intoxicated. But again, ultimately, follow your own protocols. Tools that we may use for spine motion restrictions. Again, in our region, the only thing we use for spine motion restrictions are seat collars. Some services still may uh, use backboards, other equipment. It's important to note that cervical collars can increase intracranial pressure. We can, especially if we get it too tight, there's that device, that rigid splint over the neck that can compress the veins, reducing the amount of blood that's able to drain from 
the brain. So just don't put your seat collar on too tight. They can also cause pressure sores on patients as well. Increase in difficulty in managing the airway with the seat collar as well. Not so much at the basic level for things like intubation. If that seat collar is on there, that patient has now become a lot harder for us to intubate, mainly because we can't manipulate the head like we want to. So again, the main tool that we use for spinal precautions is going to be a seat collar. So these seat collars come in different sizes. The ones that we use, that we have at the college that UMC EMS, most EMS services use are adjustable seat collars. So one size fits all. They do make an adult size and a pediatric size. But we need to make sure that we're getting the correct size. So the first thing that we do is need to measure. Uh, draw an imaginary line across the top of the shoulders right here and the bottom of the chin. We're gonna measure that space size of the neck with our fingers. So in this case, patient's about three finger width neck. Then we compare, look at our collar and we compare that size adjustment from the bottom of the collar right here to that sizing post or that black fastener that's gonna go in that hole right there. So three fingers, three fingers, she's gonna be in this, this manufacturer of the seat collar, they call it a no neck. Other manufacturers call them necklace, neck less. The vast majority of our patients, adult patients, will be no necks. No necks are going to fit the vast majority of our patients. For adjustable seat collars, that's all the way down to the shortest it can be. Assemble the and perform the uh, preform the collar. There's that sizing post that I talked about. So if our patient is seated and we're going to put a seat collar on them, see we have our partner still maintaining manual stabilization, and now we're going to put that seat collar on them. We're going to hold the seat collar by the chin piece right here with one hand. We're going to hold that up, and we're going to slide that collar up their chest until it's seated properly. Once it's seated properly, then we come around, wrap it around with the Velcro, and attach the Velcro to hold it in place. It's important that the chin must cover the central fastener in the chin piece. There's a fastener in that chin piece, that chin must cover. If it's too far out here, it's the wrong size or it's not tight enough. Again, then we wrap it around the patient's neck and head and then attach the Velcro. Very easy to put a C-collar on somebody that's sitting up. If the patient is supine, it's gonna be a little bit more difficult. It's not hard, it's gonna be a little bit more difficult. So we're still holding C-spine. We have our C-collar out, ready to go. We're going to slide the back end of the C-collar behind that gap between the patient's neck and the floor. We should fold that loop Velcro inward so it doesn't get caught. After we pull the, the bottom piece back behind, then we wrap the collar around to that proper position and then fasten the Velcro. Very easy, we will practice this in class as well. If we're still using a backboard, placing a supine patient on a long backboard, What? 
So if we're doing full body spinal restrictions with the backboard, again, those are harmful effects associated with plastic patient on the backboard. Again, that's why we don't use them. There's other alternative devices like vacuum mattresses, flexies, scoop stretchers. Again, in this region, we don't use those either. They go directly onto the stretcher. Another tool that we may use is a short board, also more commonly referred to as a KED or a Kendrick's extrication device. These are hardly ever used. I've been doing EMS for 18 years now, 19 years, damn a whole. Uh, you know how many times I've used a KED? Shit ton of times in class. You know how many times I've used on it on a patient? Absolutely zero. My dad's been in EMS since the dinosaurs roamed the earth. You know how many times he's used a KED on one pa on a patient? One time, and he, I think he regretted doing it after the fact as well. These are not used. Most EMS services do not carry KEDs. Everything in legislature, very slow, even though nobody uses them, we are still mandated to teach them. Y'all still get to practice them, and y'all see why nobody ever uses these. You can also use a head stabilization device, more commonly referred to as CIDs or cervical immobilization devices. So if we have a patient that's already up walking around their ambulatory prior to us getting on scene, and we need to take spinal precautions. First thing we're gonna do is we have to take manual precautions. We can possibly, if our protocols allow us to, instruct the patient to perform self-restrictions. That's what patient with no indications of spinal injuries, a reason for SMR does not require it. But with self-restrictions, we're having the patient do all the work. We're telling them, hey, I want you to keep your head and neck straight, neutral, in line, keep your nose in line with your belly button, in line with your toes, and do not move until I'm done evaluating. If during our assessment, we determine, yeah, patient possibly has a spinal injury, we need to take spinal precautions. We'll go ahead and apply our C-collar, roll the stretcher right up behind them, and have the patient sit directly down on the stretcher and then lay down. And then strap them down. And again, we typically, with spinal precautions, want their head just slightly elevated around 30 degrees or so. Then strap them down. If we have a patient that is on the ground and our protocol still requires us to use a backboard, hold, maintain manual stabilization, apply a C-collar. We have to maintain spinal precautions if we're fully immobilizing them on a backboard. Even after we put that C-collar on, whoever's holding the head still has to continue to hold the head until we get them strapped to the backboard. So apply the C-collar, log roll the patient onto their side, place the board behind them, and then log roll them back onto the board. And we'll practice this in class. Secure the torso first. The head needs to be the last thing that is secured to the backboard. So we do the torso first and legs and then the head. It doesn't, the head doesn't have to be the absolute last thing, but the torso does need to be secured before the head. The legs could technically be the last. 
So again, we're gonna they're gonna put this patient on a full spine board. So patients holding or the partners holding C spine, manual stabilization, they have that C collar on ready to go. Now we need to log roll the patient on the side. We have to make sure that we're moving the patient as a unit and not manipulating that spine. So we're gonna move on counts. We're gonna move on the count of three. Whoever's at the head holding C spine is the one directing and calling the count. So she'll say on my count, we'll log roller, one, two, three, then you'll log roll. Roll the patient on the side, uh, at command of the EMT, maintaining stabilization. While the patient's on their side, this is when we're gonna take the opportunity to check their back. So counted, log rolled her onto her side, we're gonna assess the back. And now we're also gonna get that backboard behind her ready to go. And then we're gonna log roll this patient back onto the spine board. Again, person at the head is going to count one, two, three, and then we log roll the patient back onto the board, get the patient center on the board, and then strap down the torso. Torso first, after the torso is done, then we can uh, secure the head. Uh, if, they're if it's uncomfortable then for them to lay their legs completely flat out, we can put padding, a pillow, rolled up blanket below behind their knees as well. If the patient was unconscious and we're worried about their hands flopping out, we can secure their hands together with Perlex, triangular bandage, whatever. Again, that last part after the torso, we're going to stabilize or we're going to secure the head. And these styrofoam blocks, these are disposable CIDs that we then tape down. If we're using a backboard as just a movement device, and this is what we do in this area, do the same thing. We're going to put the C collar on, manual hold manual stabilization. We're going to log roll the patient on the count of three, check the back while we're up there. Place the patient on the backboard, secure the patient to the backboard. We're not going to secure the head. We're just going to leave the head as is. We're going to carry the backboard and patient to the stretcher. Once we get to the stretcher, we're going to take the patient off the backboard and then secure the patient to the stretcher. If the patient is still inside a vehicle, for example, and we're asking them to self extricate or get out of the vehicle. Again, self-stabilization, instruct the patient to hold everything in neutral and inline position. Do our assessment. If we can rule out the possibility of a spinal injury based on our assessment, then we don't have to worry about this. If we can't, now we're going to follow the protocol. We're going to apply the C collar to the patient. Instruct the patient to pivot their legs and body out of the vehicle. Stand straight up from the vehicle. And then we'll get the stretcher right behind them, have them rotate 180 degrees, sit back down onto the stretcher, then lay down. Using a KED, again, the device you'll never use outside of your basic class. Go ahead and do your assessment. We never use chin cups or straps. That's gonna prevent the patient from opening their mouth. 
Always tighten the torso and leg straps before securing the patient's head. And never pad between the cervical collar and the board as well. And again, we'll practice this in class, but that's what that KED looks like. Holding C-spine, we have the C-collar on. We're going to slide the device behind the patient. We're gonna wrap the vest part around the patient's torso, secure the straps. One big thing with the KED, you gotta make sure that that vest part, the top part of this vest right here is all the way up under his armpits. If it's not under the armpits, when we go to lift it, the device is gonna slide up on the patient. So secure the chest straps. The newer ones are all color-coded so you don't get your straps crisscrossed. After we get the chest piece, now we secure the leg straps. After the leg straps are done, now we can secure the head using the included straps. From there, we can extra secure in the hands. Now we can rotate the patient or lift the patient out of the vehicle onto the stretcher onto the backboard. And again, we'll practice this in class too. And also have perform what's known as a rapid extrication or a rapid rollout. Three situations in which a movement of rapid extrication is allowed. If the scene is not safe, if the vehicle that the patient is in is catching on fire, we're not worried about spinal injury. We're gonna grab that patient and get the patient out of that vehicle away from that danger. Patient's condition is so unstable that you need to move and transport them immediately. Again, we're gonna semi worry about spinal precautions, but our focus is let's get them out, let's get them in the route to the hospital. Or our patient is very stable, but they are blocking access to a second patient that is extremely unstable. So hold C-spine inside the vehicle, place that seat collar on the patient. And all we're gonna do is just rotate the patient and lay them down and drag them out of the vehicle. You may have to shift and hand off C-spine from one provider to another provider, depending on circumstances. Lay them down flat. And now we can slide the patient and the board up. Another alternative is if it's safe enough to do so and it's needed, the vehicle can be cut as well to give us more room to function. If the patient's unstable though, and if we don't have to cut a vehicle, we're not gonna cut the vehicle. The fire department's not gonna cut the vehicle. Cutting a vehicle takes time. And again, we typically only do that if there's no other way to get a patient out. All right. Let's go ahead and take a break. Let's be back. You know what? Let me see what, what slide I'm on.